You there? I am. Oh, you're on your on your on your uh, video. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether it was just going to be a phone call or or video. I, I guess if there's no video, I can kind of sleep. Yeah, you can sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some te- people do these podcasts and they go, "I want video." It's like, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I don't like um, having people getting all ready and you know doing up their hair and all that stuff. So I'm just like, whatever. You know, it's just right, audio. I'll, I'll turn off video. All okay. Right. Yeah, you don't want to see me. I woke up like two hours ago. Oh gosh. <laughs> Give me. Let's see. I was finishing up a um, and uh, text and email because you know how this stuff is just moving so quickly. Yeah. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by, you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain. It's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. I've been waiting for this for a while. Uh, uh, Stephen Finley, Dr. Stephen Finley, is an associate professor of religious studies and African and African American studies and director of African and African American studies program at at, uh, Louisiana State University. He's co-editor of the 2014 book, Esotericism in African-American Religious Experience. Um, There is a Mystery, is the title, and author of the monograph, In and Out of This World, Material and Extraterrestrial Bodies in the Nation of Islam. He's also written a monograph entitled The Mother Wheel, Louis Farrakhan, Gendered UFOs, and the Body Politics of Race and Desire. Those are all um, mouthfuls, but we are going to get into them today in this conversation. Uh, Is there anything I left out, Stephen? No, I'm I'm happy to be here and having this conversation with you. Uh, there are a couple other books that I'm 
that I'm working on uh, is a book actually on religion and whiteness, mm-hmm. which is an edited book that is uh, uh, in the production stage with Edinburgh University Press. And that should be out by the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping the book on the Nation of Islam, uh, which is under contract with Duke University Press, will be out by the end of the year. That's a lot of stuff coming out. Um, so the, that's an academic press. Both of those it, are, it, actually. It, it is. They're both top-tier academic presses. But given the nature of the work that I do, it, it's taken me quite a while to build this kind of momentum. So it seems like everything is coming out all at once because I, I have another co-authored book that's under review <laughs> and another uh, a proposal for a monograph, another yep. book on Robert T. Brown, who is related to this conversation. And that's also under review. But but I've been working on these things for, for some time. And it just seems that now is a time when everything is starting to, to break through. Yeah, because you have a lot of um, separate writings, but no like specific, at least as that I can tell, this is a book by Stephen Finley. That's exactly right. Uh, the edited book, which is the esotericism book, uh, in African American religious experience that you mentioned, and then uh, the the edited book with Edinburgh University Press and the monograph with uh, Duke University Press, and then uh, I have another co-authored book on Black faculty studies that is under review with another top tier press, huh. and the proposal for a book on Robert T. Brown is another monograph or a single authored book with another top tier press. How do you even have time to talk to me? (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate the question and it's, it's tough to fit in, but again, some of these things have been ongoing for some time and now it just seems like a good time when all of these projects are congealing and breaking through seemingly all at once. But I really have been working on these projects, many of them for five, six years. Yeah, I mean, I've I've sort of since I met you last year, I've kind of been following what you were doing, and it seems like a long time. I was kind of surprised that you didn't have a actual book out. Now they're all coming out at the same time, all at the same time. Yeah, I uh, I was telling someone I'm going to go from from one book to five books, and it's going to seem like it's it's overnight. <laughs> but, but I really have been working on these for a while. Are you one of the only people that is talking about these subjects? I mean, I, I mean. Th- the, the subject you just mentioned now was, um, I think those are probably, um, you're not the only one, but I think in regards to the UFO subject and its relationship to the Nation of Islam and um, and uh, African-American uh, groups and identity in general, I think you might be the only one. Well, there have been a few uh, articles and other pieces, but I think for the most part, I'm the only academic who is taking these serious as uh, seriously as religious phenomena and who plans on writing a monograph on them. There were a few other people I've in, encountered over the years in other fields. Uh, there was a, a student at the time at uh, Auburn University. I think he was in anthropology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember having some conversations with him. Jeff Kripal, right. uh, who you know very well, referred him to me. But I'm not sure what, what he's doing. So I would say I'm probably one of the few, if not the only. Yeah, and that's kind of what fascinated me. Um, is was that part of your doctoral thesis, or did it not have really anything to do with the the weirdness part of it? it was more academic. It's it's related. It was it was part of my doctoral research on the Nation of Islam, 
which of course was very academic, but one of the things that I've argued both uh, in that project and in subsequent articles, especially the one on Louis Farrakhan uh, and the Mother Wheel, which appeared in 2012 in the Journal of American Academy of Religion, mm-hmm. is that in order to understand the nation of Islam, we really have to give serious attention to all their discourses, all these narratives about UFOs, because they're really central to making sense of what the Nation of Islam is doing. And it, and it seems to me you really can't make sense of Louis Farrakhan. I mean, he's inscrutable if right. you don't take the UFO stuff seriously. And so I always tell people, don't believe, you can believe hardly anything that you read online about Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam, because none of it really deals with this, this matter and these uh, UFOs and what they call the mother wheel as, as serious religious phenomena that are important to making sense of the group, and in particular for Louis Farrakhan. For me, everything revolves around his encounter, uh, uh, his reported encounter with this mother wheel. So even the meaning of uh, their religious discourses, the meaning of black bodies, uh, uh, the religious meaning of women's bodies, all of that is connected to both Louis Farrakhan's body and to UFOs. Right. Yeah, you... you uh... Uh, described that quite quite well in the paper in the in the mother wheel paper um well maybe because i remember when this happened um i think a couple people i know kind of said hey look lewis farrakhan's now having a you you know claiming ufo experience and when did he announce this sometime in the 90s no much earlier than that okay it only entered you know mainstream consciousness later i think something like september 15th 1985 okay is when he claimed to have had a vision of being taken into the mother wheel. Right. But then he didn't really talk about it for a few, until a few years after that, at least publicly. No, I think everybody's just catching up. Oh, okay. (laughs) And again, what I'm saying is this is the central, I would argue the most important religious idea for Louis Parkon and for the nation of Islam. It's what makes this, this, these UFO narratives, this mother wheel, is what congeals and makes sense of and brings together all of what they're doing and saying. For some reason, I remembered that you said he had the experience. Maybe I maybe I misread that. Had the experience and then waited for the whatever he wanted to describe or the prophecy of it for um, two or three or four years. But he maybe, did. Yeah, okay. he did. So, so I'll go. Then back he had a, a, like a news conference to talk about it. That's exactly right. So on September fifteenth, nineteen eighty five. Louis Farrakhan describes being in Mexico and in um, uh, a place called uh, uh, Tepotzlan on Tepotzeco Mountain. And according to Louis Farrakhan, it's the place where you find the ruins of the, um, uh, the rituals uh, and, and worship of Quetzalcoatl, uh, a name that will be familiar to you. Yeah, and a, a, in a few before. places, actually, but that was just that, one of the places he was at. That's exactly right. And so on this day, he said he had climbed the mountain and he had been there several times. I mean, he's really clear about that. Uh, the, the Nation of Islam is always making these treks, these religious pilgrimages to historically Native American sites. For example, they're always going to Sedona, Arizona. Right. Right. And again, if you know anything about Sedona, Arizona, you know what kind of New Age Native American site that is. In fact, they were there recently. Oh, okay. It's also a heavy, heavy um, uh, concentration of UFO interest, um, probable sightings, all that as well. That's exactly right. And the last time he was there, in fact, 
he said he saw the mother wheel. And this was this was fairly recently, uh, uh, just in 2019. Mm -hmm. But it was in 1985 where he said he climbed the mountain. He was he was in Mexico with a few friends of his. And these were people who were uh, part of his inner circle in the nation of Islam, including Mother Tainetta Muhammad, who was considered uh, one of the mothers of the nation of Islam and who became um, a wife of the late Elijah Muhammad, who was the, the leader of the nation of Islam from early 1930s, roughly 1933 to 1975 when he died. And so mm -hmm. Mother Tainetta Muhammad was with him. Jabril Muhammad was there with him and others who were part of his inner circle. Right. And Louis Farrakhan said that he, he climbed, uh, he was, he had this vision, which of course he doesn't mean hallucination. He describes something real that happened to him. And he heard this voice. He, he saw the, this mother wheel descending over the mountain and he was being summoned to come into it. And he heard this voice that said, not them, just you. That's a quote from Louis Farrakhan, not them, just you. Right. And so uh, he said that this was one of the smaller wheels or one of the baby planes or baby wheels uh, is the term that they used to describe him. And that he was taken up into this this baby wheel and was whisked away to this larger mother wheel in which he encountered Elijah Muhammad, who had died in uh, 10 years earlier in 1975, yep. but also felt the presence of Master Fard Muhammad, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam and for years was considered God for the Nation of Islam. And so that's the initial experience in September 1985. And yeah, maybe you could describe a little more because you said baby wheel, mother wheel. Um, what is it? What, how does this cosmology, uh, how does he see this cosmology and did it exist before uh, that experience? Very good question. So the Nation of Islam traces the origins of the uh, of the mother wheel to 1929. And uh, Master Fard Muhammad, whom I mentioned a moment ago, was said to have built the mother wheel uh, along with Japanese scientists in on the islands of Nepal, of uh, Nippon, uh, in one of the caves of the Japanese islands in 1929. So it so it did exist. Uh, according to their uh, their cosmology that early. But it was only 1985 when it became real to Louis Farrakhan. Now, he he had been taught since uh, at least the early. Uh, well, he joined the Nation of Islam in 1955, but the members of the Nation of Islam had been taught about this mother plane mm -hmm. since they described since at least the early 1940s. And so what, what they say is that this is an actual physical craft that has within it 1,500 smaller wheels or, or smaller planes, and that these are simultaneously um, uh, bombing planes, but that this other UFO, this larger vehicle or mother wheel, is also a uh, vehicle of, of regeneration. And so at once it will bring... Uh, uh, to a close or destruction, this, this evil age. So it's really apocalyptic, but it will also regenerate the earth and sort of this millennial uh, space, this millennial kingdom, uh, freedom and peace on this earth. So that's, that's, so that's basically the, uh, uh, the background of it. 
The Nation of Islam, of course, uh, I argue is, is probably one of the most interracial groups of any religious group uh, in America. And I've, and I've, and I've argued this uh, several times before, which is really counter to the narratives about the Nation of Islam. Yeah, I mean, it, it totally is. I've, the only place I've heard it from is from you. And how, um, how do you argue that? Uh, because well, most people see it as extremely insular. That's right. That's right. And so black in the nation of Islam, or this category black or blackness, is actually, I refer to it as a surplus category. In other words, it, the, the category carries far more meaning than, than we would receive it or understand it in, in the U.S. For example, we think black, we're primarily thinking of African-Americans. Right. But, but they meant black as a far more expansive body and group of human beings in, that encompassed, in their language now, not mine, black, brown, red, and yellow. Mm-hmm. So, so all of the people who are signified by those colors were considered black and part of the original family. In, in fact, the pilots of this mother wheel are said to represent all four of those categories, black, brown, red, and yellow. So we're talking Asians, Native Americans, Latinos, black people, and so on, are all part of the nation of Islam, what, what they mean when they say black. Uh, I'll, I'll go a step further and, and just point out that there's also an, a Latino nation of Islam, uh, which is also part of the organization, and that they, they also have Native American members, uh, especially among the Hopi and the Navajo in Arizona. They go out and recruit these people? They, they do. Uh, they do. But Louis Farrakhan has had a relationship with them for several centuries and uh, has even been among them, defending them against the government incursion on their land. And um, when you say several centuries, do you mean in incarnations? I, I may have, if I said several centuries, I meant several decades. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because even the mother wheel is not several centuries old. Again, it, it was supposedly built in 1929, but the vision of it is ancient because it's the same vision that Ezekiel had, the prophet Ezekiel. Yeah, I was going to ask about Hebrew that. Bible or the Old Testament in Ezekiel uh, chapter one. It's, and so for them, that's the mother wheel. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was wondering about that because the o- the only time, well, the first time I know of where people were examining the uh, pro- the the Ezekiel's um, account as a possible UFO was, I think, beginning in the nineteen fifties or sixties uh, when that first appeared in popular literature. And uh, it, and it may even go back further than than that to some uh, Hebrew traditions. And uh, Jewish scholar Michael Lieb has a has a wonderful book that you've probably heard of. Uh, called Children of Ezekiel on this very phenomenon, race and UFOs, which which uh, are interpretations of Ezekiel one as an actual vehicle. Mm-hmm. And his book is called uh, Children of Ezekiel, published with Duke University Press, and it's a wonderful book. Well, I'll have to check that one out. Um, it's uh, what what I'm trying to emphasize here is that people don't, you know, that at least in mainstream UFO studies, which is you know just regular people, not, not academics. They don't, I never see any black people at UFO conferences, maybe one or two. That's right. Um, I don't see them in the literature. I don't see them quoted anywhere. And if they are, it's be, it's the mainstream, you know, you, you know, view of the UFO and of abductions and all that as, uh, 
as generally, um, well, there's there's two categories. It could either be either benevolent or malevolent, and the malevolent has generally taken over. Um, but the, there's also positive uh, UFO abduction experiences. Um, when you talk about an African American experience of UFOs and abductions, it's it's generally not shared with the, the greater society. And th- that's, uh, and, and to most people listening here, and to me when I, until I first started talking to you, is revelation. Yeah, so let me make a few uh, observations here. Yeah, what I'm asking for, I guess, is some context here for people sure. who have never heard of this, which that's, you know, that's, when they do, it's, right. it's, it's a huge area that's like, what, really? This has been going on? That's, that's what exactly I'm trying right. to emphasize to people here. And, and the Nation of Islam claims that they were first in the U.S., uh, that all of the of the real UFO encounters and, and theologies and discussions actually begins with Master Fard Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad in the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. And I want to see uh, the Nation of Islam as connected to a larger tradition of, of, uh, of African-American UFO religions and UFO uh, reported UFO encounters. That is a separate tradition from what we might call mainstream ufology. Right. It now, is. I'm not, that, that's exactly right. And so I may be the first, but I'm not sure that, that, that I'm the first to talk about this as a distinct tradition. David Halperin, as you know, you're, you're well aware of him, may have been talking about this around the same time as potentially a different tradition. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I want to be careful to give him some, some credit there. Yes, definitely. Although uh, I've probably gone much further in developing the idea that this is a distinct tradition. Oh, no, he's, he's acknowledged that. That's exactly right. And thank you. And I really appreciate uh, uh, David for that. But the other thing that he points out, and this is in reference to a term that you use in one of his blogs, is that when it comes to the black traditions, perhaps we shouldn't even use terms like abduction. Right. And, yeah. I, th- and, I, and I think he's right. And one of the things that David Halperin says is that because this is a term that is associated with a particular tradition. And what he means by that is white ufology. Yeah. And he's he's exactly right, because to another point you made, the 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 African-American UFO uh, uh, traditions don't use the term abduction because they see that as a negative term. Right. While these particular traditions see their experience as wholly friendly, almost exclusively friendly. These are not negative or painful or terrorizing experiences at all. In, uh, in other words, they see these encounters with with the other, right? But they want to see the other as as related to them as black people, and so this is why they're, they're not negative experiences for them. Yeah, the, this is the, this open. You know, when I I saw you speak, it opened up an entire area for me that I never realized because the first thing you did for probably the first couple of minutes is show pictures of lynchings. Just to That's get right. people to realize, like, look, you know, if if this had happened to you and people you knew, do you think you'd be invested in the, you know, in the ideas, the philosophy and the religion of the people that have done this to you? No. Right. You would immediately go in the other direction and try to find out where, you know, what um, underpinnings there were in your culture for what you were seeing and how to make, how, how to help you make sense of this craziness. Um, and you exactly said that right. this is what had happened to um, uh, Elijah Muhammad and Farrakhan when when they when they took up uh, um, you know tutelage under the you know first Fard Muhammad, Muhammad and then That's and then right. Elijah to uh, Muhammad to uh, Farrakhan. 
That's right. Well, the other thing I was trying to demonstrate is that the African-American experience, uh, or I should say not the African-American experience, but African-American experience, I don't want to reify it in the U.S., was in part initiated what might be with what might be understood as an alien abduction. And this idea <laughs> yes. isn't unique to me. Yeah. It's, you know, this is this is what some of the uh, the Afrofuturist scholars are talking about, that the slave trade is analogous to an alien abduction abduction. Mm-hmm. So think about it. These these, you know, these beings show up on on the, the, the coast of Africa in these ships. They look like ghosts. You've never seen people who didn't have color. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they try to make sense of it, some of them, by saying these are dead ancestors who have returned. And all of a sudden, they're putting you in chains. They're putting you on these ships and they're whisking you away across a vast ocean, which is, which is geographically and, and temporally disorienting and taking you away to another to a foreign land. Yes. I mean, if that's not analogous to an alien abduction, <laughs> exactly. I don't know what is. Uh-huh. And so I was trying to establish that this might be a starting point for, for making sense of the African-American UFO phenomena. Yeah, and the, and the separateness they feel. It's kind of like, uh, as I read some of your uh, papers that you sent me, um, you get the sense that Anything that has to do with the, uh, the the mainstream culture is rejected because it's automatically scary, evil, and, and terrible. And everything that's rejected by it um, is something that you should look at because that is what the those people that you don't that you don't uh, have anything in common with are afraid of. And if they're afraid of that, afraid of those things, it's an indication it might be part of what is a, a, a truth for you. That that's a good point, and so. You know, we, we find with the Nation of Islam, as we do in a lot of other religious phenomena, that they find rejected knowledge, what has been rejected by the mainstream, as extremely meaningful. Because this is probably where the truth lies, right? Because you can't trust the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who enslaved and lynched you and said that you were inferior. And so there must be something going on that is secret or hidden that they're not telling us, that yeah. the world doesn't know that really says who we actually are. And this is most likely connected to the cosmos out there. And so you have these uh, African-American communities then turning outward for their meaning, where meaning in this world has been difficult to establish, at least a positive meaning has been difficult to establish because of of centuries now of, of, again, slavery, uh, white racial terror, white supremacy, lynchings, and so on. And so... They look out there and says there must be something to this. You know, we have to be greater than what we've experienced here. But not just that. There has to be a reason why. Yeah, we've I was been about to say logically, point. too, not only spiritually right. and emotionally, but logically. That's exactly right. And so like other esoteric traditions, including those in Europe, they point to this rejected knowledge, the secret knowledge as potentially the greatest knowledge, as having something meaningful to say about who they actually are. How are your studies accepted in the, in the, uh, in the academic community and other religious scholars? It seems like, <laughs> cause you're still talking about UFOs and people start backing up, you know, <laughs> I, I won't tell you the school, but I remember I was invited, uh, as a finalist, uh, for, for a job at a, a really elite university. And I was a new professor then. And, uh, they asked for my, my subject. Uh, ahead of time. 
and I sent them uh, what was at the time the uh, the paper I was working on for uh, uh, on Louis Farrakhan and UFOs, and it was called The Meaning of Mother in uh, Louis Farrakhan's Mother Wheel, Race, Gender, and Sexuality in the Nation of Islam's UFO. And uh, at the lunch, after my presentation, one of the people who was on the committee uh, confided in me that when she first got the subject, she asked somebody, is he serious? <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's the response that I've, that I've gotten. But of course I was serious. And, and again, now I'm, you know, I'm arguing that you can't even understand the nation of Islam, nor what race means, nor what gender means in the, nation, in, in the religious group without trying to make sense, some theoretical sense of what UFOs mean and how they function in the religious group. But yeah, it's 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 tough going out there because we live in a materialistic world mm-hmm. where people, you know, their their knee jerk reaction is to reject these ideas and to reject the the validity of UFOs, especially as an academic conversation. And that's precisely what you're asking. And yeah. so, sure, it's it's been it's been tough out there. But that article um, that I was working on at the time I did that uh, presentation at the university came out in 2012, and in 2013, the Nation of Islam published a book called UFOs in the Nation of Islam by Ilya Rashad, or Ilya Rashad Muhammad, a year later, where he's arguing precisely what I'd argued in the, in the, uh, in the article, and that is that UFOs are central to making sense of the Nation of Islam. Now, we see that differently, but we both agree that, that the idea of UFOs are utterly important to making sense of the group. Yeah, it seems like he's going to try and get out in front of you. It's like, well, that's nice, uh, Dr. Finley, but we we actually really actually believe this. You can be a religious <laughs> studies person, but <laughs> we want to, we want to get it like straight from the uh, straight from the source. Is th- is this is what we believe? What are the differences though? You just said you know you 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 um, maybe you can describe how you made uh how you interpreted Farrakhan's experience and his transmission of that to the nation of Islam and the public what's the difference between that and that uh that book uh how did how, yeah. how they described it because it's you know they've got a so so so-called insider's view and you've got an academic's view that's right and um and sometimes they you know they're going to be opposed to my view and I've been in meetings uh with some UFO scholars where that was precisely what happened and I want to see the idea of UFOs as a religious idea, as an idea that makes sense of their experience and the meaning of blackness and the meaning of black embodiment. And so they want to see it very, very differently. They don't look at UFOs as a religious idea. And for, for me, that's where the most meaning is. They see it as a scientific achievement. Mm-hmm. Now, the scientific achievement still says something about the meaning of black bodies. It means that that black people are not the most inferior. They're the most technologically superior. And so their interpretation and my interpretation, yeah, because they think that uh, the people that build these things and run them and pilot them and all that are essentially part of the black race. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so we cosmologically with- everywhere. That's right. Yeah. We end up with a similar interpretation, but it's more important for them that the mother will be seen as as a literal, right, physical and technical feat that says something about physics 
and mathematics and technology, a technology that's even greater than anything that NASA has than it is for me. For me, this is a religious idea. And for me, that's that's the strength of it. That's that's it allows me to make sense of what what they're doing mm-hmm. and make sense of race and gender and the meaning of the religion. But they see this as a scientific feat. And so in some ways, then they want to see the nation of Islam and perhaps African-Americans or black people in the broader sense in general as a scientific people, rather than me seeing this as 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 a religious and important religious idea. So do you see the distinction? I do, right? because it, it's very similar to uh, f- other UFO religions, if you want to call them that, um, such as uh, the um, Unarius Society, which is called the Unarius Society of, of, of Science, I believe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because they want they want to emphasize that not only that, that is it, this is not just a belief, it's something that is a science um, that has a basis in a reality that other people can, you know, uh, understand as a science. Although we we're looking at it and we're like, well, that still looks like a lot of belief to me masquerading as what we might think of as science. Right. Um, but their, but their idea is like, no, no, this is actually based in some reality. You don't have to just believe it. It actually exists. Um, now let's go back to where we started. Yeah. African-Americans brought here in chains, treated worse than animals, these discourses of, of hundreds of years old, these narratives that they are unintelligent, they're intellectually inferior. And you can begin to see then how this idea of the mother will as a scientific feat and technology might help them to reorient themselves in the world and to counter narratives about black inferiority mm-hmm. and, and to disrupt the meaning of black bodies that uh, uh, that come from slavery and having been enslaved and lynched, for example. So right. in many ways, it makes perfect sense. You've quoted uh, one of Farrakhan's speeches where he's saying, well, there's there's black people all over the universe. So we're everywhere. <laughs> that, that's right. And so for the Nation of Islam, black people are trillions of years old. Mm-hmm. And they actually point to the cosmos uh, for that, in particular, Mars and Venus. And of course, you know, in 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 these narratives, Mars and Venus are almost always really significant. Yeah, well, they're uh, significant back from, um, I think, the first ideas of that, well, probably ancient, but first modern ideas of that came from theosophy, and you talk about the um, the uh, transmission of theosophical ideas through um, Fard Muhammad to uh, the, the, eventually the Nation of Islam. Indeed, I do. So, so let me again bracket this, that, and, and say they're going to deny those ideas, because Again, they want to see this as divine knowledge that came directly from God. And so you see the sort of challenges that I might have as, as, yeah. a, as a scholar when I say these are very similar to ideas that one finds in theosophy, especially in the Nation of Islam religious narrative. I see some, some really strong parallels and language. And with this, this idea that Master Fard Muhammad, who they see as God, who uh, I, you know, again, I, I see as a as a person um, uh, as, as potentially having a background in theosophy. And so there's some fairly strong evidence to suggest that he came in contact uh, with with uh, some pretty important theosophical leaders in northern California. Yeah, you said in San Francisco, probably sometime in the 1930s, I think it could have been uh, early 30s. Again, the nation of Islam traces their origin to uh, July 4th, 
that all sound familiar, 1930. Right. So it would have been in the 1920s. Oh, okay. Uh, perhaps that uh, he, he claimed that he may have had uh, this encounter uh, with, uh, with theosophists. Um, but I do see very strong uh, parallels between uh, some of the, uh, what I'm going to call mythology in the Nation of Islam right. and what I see in theosophy. Let's take one at a time. What are some of the ideas from theosophy? Either he, they got from there or a same divine, divine inspiration, as they would say. Well, when I, when I, I read uh, Aaron Prophet's dissertation, uh, which is in part on theosophy, as you know, she was a student of Jeff Kripal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and her dissertation was uh, uh, in part on theosophy. And she's talking about some of their cosmology. Well, the Nation of Islam has this elaborate uh, cosmology, this mythology of the origins of the world that I think functions as a theodicy, which means that it tries to to describe the world and to make sense of black suffering. And so it goes back um, uh, symbolically trillions of years to the origins of the universe uh, and of the earth. And uh, and it works its way up to. Uh, describing uh, the the origins of human beings, in particular the races. And uh, Elijah Muhammad claims to have gotten this from Master Fard Muhammad, who was God for him. So there was this master-disciple transmission of this this secret knowledge uh, from Fard Muhammad to Elijah Muhammad, according to uh, Elijah Muhammad. And when he talks about the origins of the races, uh, he's, he's, he's... he talks about this this uh, scientist by the name of Yakub, and that's why some people refer to this story as the Yakub myth or the Yakub story. And human beings, or at least white human beings, uh, are said to have come from this scientist Yakub. Uh, the rest of the the rest of the, the planet, basically, or the original family in the mythology, which was uh, black, brown, red, and yellow, were created by God. White people were created by this renegade scientist who was dissatisfied uh, for various reasons. And he created, he wanted to create uh, this unlike race. That's the term that uh, Elijah Muhammad used, this unlike race, meaning unlike these people of color, mm-hmm. who would then destroy the people of color. And so you can see, and so I'm getting, I'm working my way to some of the parallels, but you can see how they're trying to make sense of black suffering. Uh, and so Yakub, uh, was said to be a scientist, a genius, but he was mad, uh, uh, both in the sense of being angry and the sense of being slightly off uh, <laughs> yeah. psych- psych- psychologically. And he, he looked at the black germ, right, which, by which we want to read uh, genes and chromosomes. Yes. And he saw that in the black germ there were two people, and that's the language that, that they use in the, in the, uh, the narrative. One black, one brown. And so what Yakub did was that he got rid of the darker one and he kept the, the brown germ. And he looked in the microscope and noticed that the brown germ had two people in it as well, say one red, one yellow. Right. And so you can see eventually through this genetic uh, manipulation, genetic that's yeah. exactly genetic manipulations, you end up with white. But this very language of germs, right, you find in theosophy. 
the very the very specific language of germ i i'm suggesting comes from theosophy i see and since um since there's reason to believe that master Farad muhammad um had some contact with theosophy then it makes sense that he would take some of their mythological language and that it would find its way in what became the nation of islam's mythology and that's just one example of it you also traced a a thread possibly from uh, masonry and various offshoots of that in the in the mainstream culture such as who are the people that wear the fezes that's correct um you're talking about the Morris science temple yeah yeah exactly yeah so there's reason to believe that um, uh, Master Fard Muhammad also belonged to the Morris Science Temple. And so what it looks like is that Master Fard Muhammad had membership or at least close contact with many religious groups mm-hmm. and was creatively borrowing from these groups to construct a mythology that helped to explain the existence of the world as it is. Yeah. Uh, the origins of black people, and by black, again, he meant uh, what we would now refer to as Latinos, Asians, and so on, and their experience, particularly the the experience of those not not simply colonized people broadly, but those who were enslaved and lynched in America, uh, African Americans. And so he built this mythology to describe the world, but then to give meaning to it mm-hmm. and to help them make sense of it. And and this seems to have very definite connections in Freemasonry, in Theosophy. Uh, from the Jehovah's Witnesses and science fiction and in many other sources. Again, so I'm looking at it as a scholar, as others have. Right. But from the religious side, they're saying, no, this was secret knowledge. This was revelation that came directly from God and was transmitted to Elijah Muhammad. There is a, a discussion, I think, in one of the papers about uh, Jeff Kripal's idea about the subject and object and how that breaks down when you're talking about a numinous experience, a, a, a peak experience such as uh, mm-hmm. Farrakhan had. And so people start to discuss, well, did this really happen? Did he actually go on a UFO and all this other stuff? Well, as far as he's concerned, he did. And the meaning, of, right. it, the meaning of it is that, you know, it, they're going to believe it literally. But as we look at it, the meaning of it is just as important as any kind of um, uh, objective reality that could have come out of it, because we have no access to that objective reality. All we have access to is the the reaction and interpretation of it. That's correct. And so you asked me earlier about a delay, a delay between the experience that in 1985 that Louis Farrakhan reports having and when he actually reported this to the world. And so that was from 1985, September, mm-hmm. to October 1989. And it was on October, and I believe October 19, 1989, that he announced this to the world at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C., where he held a press conference to talk about his experience as well as what the experience means. Mm-hmm. But, but to your point, about the objective and uh, subjective, Farrakhan claims that the truth of his UFO experience would be evidenced by all of us because we would see UFOs over all the major cities subsequent to that uh, 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 as proof of what he was saying. So they're gonna point to these other UFO encounters and reports as proof of the 
what some might say of the subjective experience. Or, or the objective proof of the subjective experience. That's right. Yeah, even though they interpret it, in, you know, it's like when you see a UFO, that is, that is validation for what I'm saying and what I, what, what I experienced. You, you may not have access to the truth of what, that, of what happened to me and the meaning for me, but what happened to me and the meaning for me is amplified by the fact that you see UFOs as well. That's right. And so for Louis Farrakhan, this mother will follows him. It protects him and the nation of Islam. And, and the, the, proof, the, the proof of this uh, can be found in all of these UFO encounters and stories that have been seen by multiple people, including uh, there was one encounter in the 1940s over Los Angeles that some referred to as the Battle of Los Angeles. You probably with that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where the UFO actually ch- uh, uh, chased or maybe even shot at. Uh, yeah, UFOs. there was some some object came in over the coast. It was tracked. It was seen by people and shot at by anti-aircraft. That's right. Well, that, that encounter is very important as proof for the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. There was... Uh, uh, a UFO encounter over Phoenix. And yeah, I want Phoenix to say oh, that it's 80s. that's exactly right. So they want to point to all of and, and Louis Farrakhan said that followed his uh, having been present in Phoenix. Right. And so they want to point to all of this as a, as objective evidence of this mother wheel and the truthfulness of Louis Farrakhan's experience. So now you're, now you can, so if you draw upon all that you know, just like these two examples we were just talking about, about these UFO encounters that were seen by multiple people in the U.S., you see how then they're going to weave that into their own narrative, their own mm-hmm. proof right. of, of the reality of the mother wheel. And so what they say is, is that we misrecognize the mother wheel as UFOs. What it really is, is this vehicle, this mother wheel, that is is central to the nation of Islam. How accepted is that within the church and also within the different factions and and, and, and you know breakoff groups and all that and others that claim to be the real nation of Islam? Is is this a generally accepted idea? Well, well, Greg, you you first of all, that's a really good question, and you've already hinted at how it functions. Mm-hmm. And so, let me answer the first part. UFOs as an idea or this mother will is highly accepted by other members of the Nation of Islam. Uh, in fact, it's a source of pride. Mm-hmm. Because again, they understand this UFO as both protecting them, protecting Louis Farrakhan and the nation, but also as indicating <clears throat> who they really are. They're not inferior intellectually, they're superior. So that's the first thing. Yep. The second part of it is is that I want to call Farrakhan's experience in uh, 1985 an authorizing experience or an authorizing narrative. Mm. And it's just for the reason you pointed out. In 1975, when Elijah Muhammad died in February 1975, in fact, you had all these people, all these offshoot groups, claiming to be the real nation of Islam, claiming to have the right to the teachings, the authentic teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who who had just died. And so you had these competing truth claims about Elijah Muhammad's legacy. Right. And and those groups are still in existence to to this day. There are probably a a dozen or so 
offshoot groups from the Nation of Islam. So sometimes when people say the Nation of Islam, I sometimes ask which one, <laughs> right? Because there are other groups uh, and they all claim to be the, um, the authentic Nation of Islam. For example, there's a Nation of Islam group led by a gentleman by the name of Silas Muhammad, uh, who's even more conservative than Louis Farrakhan. Uh, Farrakhan, in some ways, has distorted Elijah Muhammad uh, for him. There's a group called the United Nation of Islam, led by Royal Jenkins, uh, uh, now called, they were headquartered in Kansas City. They're now called the Value Creators. There is a Nation of Islam group led by a person who calls himself the Son of Man, and all kinds of other groups, all claiming the authentic legacy and the right to the teachings of exclusively of Elijah Muhammad. And so one of the things that 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 I think Louis Farrakhan experienced in 1985 signals to all of these other rival groups is that he's actually the one. Now, I'm going to say more, but I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> Why might he be able to make that claim that he's the rightful heir to Elijah Muhammad? Well, because of the uh, the, the the confirming experience, the authenticating experience, he says of of uh, having the mother wheel actually take him up and have this uh, uh, information transmitted to him. That's exactly right. And so Farrakhan uh, claims to be on this vehicle in 1985, where he actually hears the voice of Elijah Muhammad, and he feels his presence. Where and and Master Fard was also a presence on the wheel at the time. Now, what can authorize him more than that? Because here are the two major figures, right? One who was God for Elijah Muhammad, for mm -hmm. uh, the Nation of Islam, the earlier Nation of Islam, and then the Prophet, the only Prophet, uh, Elijah Muhammad, calling Louis Farrakhan into the mother wheel, and and giving him a message. Which then, and then Louis Farrakhan emerges then as this sage, this prophet, this one who is chosen. And so again, that's why I refer to it as an authorizing narrative. So there are a few other things I have to say mm -hmm. before uh, before you uh, you you come back with a question. I'm sure you have several, and 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 that is that Royal Jenkins, for example, claimed to have been. So Royal Jenkins uh, joined the Nation of Islam very late. Um, in the career of Elijah Muhammad. I want to say Royal Jenkins, who's older uh, right now, and I believe sick, joined in 1973. Hmm. Elijah Muhammad dies in 1975. Royal Jenkins starts his own offshoot group called the United Nation of Islam, where he claims to have been, uh, had th this experience of being taken into the sun by these these what he calls angel scientists, which is a term that comes from the, um, uh, the Nation of Islam mythology, who told him and showed him that he was the supreme being. So again, there's an authorizing narrative and a claim of an authorizing experience. The difference is, I would say, and this is one of the main differences, is Louis Farrakhan claims to have encountered Elijah Muhammad and Master Fard Muhammad. Right. Whereas uh, Royal Jenkins, whose experience uh, he claims came 10 years earlier, encountered these angel scientists. And so even even the 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 details of Farrakhan's experience authorize him as the true descendant and the true heir to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad.
as opposed to all these other groups who are out here claiming uh, to be the rightful heirs. Well, he got, you know, it, it, in his vision, I mean, these other people's visions, they're, they're not claiming to, to uh, have authorization from these, these other prophets. You'd think that they would, you know, if they were being, if they were being dishonest, they would actually try and include that (laughs) just so that they could have some kind of claim of authorization rather than just, you know, uh, uh, angel scientists. Um, That's exactly right. So it's, it's funny because you, you would think, you know, if they were lying about it or consciously lying, they'd just say, well, I saw them too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they told Mm -hmm. me that they are, that I'm right. And Farrakhan's wrong. (laughs) That's exactly right. And so there were so subsequent to the um, uh, 1985 encounter, uh, Michael Lieb talks about these five enactments um, uh, of Farcon's experience on the mother wheel. Now, I don't remember all five of them off the top of my head, but one of the big ones that uh, Farcon says was inspired by the mother wheel or his experience with the mother wheel was the Million Man March. In what was it, October 1995? Maybe October 15th, 16th, something like that. Uh, yeah, maybe the week. Earlier. I think they put out a, a special edition of one of their newsletters, which I saw, which had the a giant UFO on it um, right before. That's right. Yeah, because that's I think when most mainstream people outside of uh, outside of Nation of Islam and you know who were involved in the news uh, um, uh, cycle at the time realized that that had happened and that that was something that was part of the Nation of Islam's um, um, uh, philosophy or catechism or whatever you want to call it. That's right. And so remember my argument now, which is a unique argument in scholarship. I'm saying that you can't even understand what the Nation of Islam is doing without giving attention to these UFO narratives and their importance in the Nation of Islam. And here we have the Million Man March, which by many accounts, not those trying to debunk it, says that there were more than a million African-American men on the mall that day in October. Mm-hmm. Right. And Farrakhan says that that was ex- that was inspired by the mother wheel. Mm-hmm. And so here you have this event that maybe no other African-American could have called and and had more than a million black men attend. Right. Being connected to the mother wheel. Yeah. You see the see the point I'm trying to make? Yeah, that's also an authorization. Just it, exactly it, on, right. on, it, on the face of it, you don't even have to make a claim about that one. That actually happened. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, again, this is the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that, you know, we've neglected uh, the importance of UFOs, uh, not just the African-American traditions as a whole, because there are others, but especially in the nation of Islam. And it means that we haven't given been able to make an adequate interpretation of, of their political activities, their religious activities, and so on. Because we, we haven't given attention to what this UFO stuff means, right? And so it means yeah. that we're making claims about the nation of Islam that are separate and distinct from the UFOs because we don't know what to do with it. Well, you're a shit disturber here because you're bringing in the UFO thing and a lot of people don't want to look at that. <laughs> That's, well, they, don't, they don't know what to do with it, yeah. right? And, and, in part, and so going back to your initial question, Right. So so you said a lot of things that were really important. They, they, there also might be some fear about taking this seriously in scholarship. Mm. Where I'm arguing the scholarship has to take it seriously because you can't make sense of the group without it. Right. Whether you believe, quote unquote, in UFOs right. or not, it's it's an integral part of the uh, of the cosmology. It's an integral part of the uh, 
the whole experience and that you can't understand it without admitting that this is part of it. Um, whether you believe in the, as uh, UFOs is an objective reality or not, that putting that aside. Um, you got it. But people are so scared to even talk about it because they might be thought of as crazy, um, even bringing it. it up. It's like, well, you must believe in UFOs. Then. It's like, no, 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 that has nothing to do with it. That's exactly right. <laughs> but and so do, do you get people the, make that re- mistake a lot with you? or? Well, th- but they do ask me if I believe in, in UFOs, and that's a separate question. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like the distinction you just made. Right. You know, my argument is you can't make sense of the nation of Islam right. without, without recourse to giving serious theoretical attention to the meaning of UFOs. And yet there are all these books out here on the nation of Islam, and none of them are talking about it uh, except in passing, and they're not giving serious, serious attention to it. So the second part of your question, yeah, I get, I get uh, questions about whether I believe in UFOs all the time, and my response is always belief has nothing to do with it. Right. If, that's if, my if, response, <laughs> Stephen. That is exactly my response. That's right. Well, well, we'll say more about that because we're probably going the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. Belief has nothing to do with it. It's just it has to do with doesn't matter whether there's an objective existence or not. What matters is people's reaction to the existence. And so what interests me right now is and I've been saying this on interview shows. They said, you know, you know, what's your interest right now? He said, my interest right now is what causes UFO reports. I don't That's care right. about what what UFOs are. I wonder about what causes them. And that yep. brings up so many other questions like, you know, how do people take in uh, information? How do they take in information that doesn't make any sense to them? How does trauma affect memory? All these That's other right. things. And I think there is an initiating experience but we can't understand that experience or we can't understand where it's coming from without understanding how it's interpreted after it gets through a, a human psyche and, and nervous system and all that. So you're going to see UFOs as important for the same reasons I do mm-hmm. to making sense of religious experience. But but I, I don't even mind going a step further and say I don't I don't I don't have a problem even with the idea of UFOs as an objective experience, because I think there are no, a lot of I reasons. don't either. There are a lot of reasons to to think that's that's valid, yeah. and so so no, we're on the we're on the same page where that's concerned. Hence, why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do people often ask you, and what are you? Just as we're doing now, what are your personal feelings about it, and does that affect how they think about your scholarship? Well, that's a good question, and uh, and maybe we should be asking them. Uh, I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. But if, but I but I do know that when I tell some people that I have an interest in race and UFOs, race, religion and UFOs more generally, sometimes their first reaction is to um, uh, is to reduce UFOs and ex- uh, claims of UFO experiences to psychology in order to dismiss them. And I'm saying, but that's not even scientific because you no, have no, that, that's your own problem. The evidence. Yeah. Right. And so I get that response a lot, but it comes from people who think they're being objective and scholarly. And, and I'm saying it's exactly the opposite because it's an unwillingness yeah. to, to, to look and to examine, to see if there's actually any objective data yeah. about yeah. UFOs. Yeah, non-belief is belief. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I get that. But I mean, this is this is the road that I've chosen. Because I'm not interested in a lot of the mainstream work uh, in African-American religion. I'm interested in these gaps 
and mm. these ideas in the margins and that they may have something important to tell us about our world. And I'm interested in that, just like you are, right? And for some of the same reasons. Yeah, if we if we unpack what's going on with the Nation of Islam and other UFO groups and, you know, what does that tell us about how we perceive things? And if we little got a little bit more of a hint about how we perceive things, that may give, give us a little more of an insight into what it, the initiating experience might be. If there is any access to that, it has to be through our, our perceptions and beliefs, I believe. Sure. And it's a, this initiating experience initiates us quite often, or those who claim this experience, to a totally different view of the nature of the world. And that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, where, right. where you know, subjective and objective doesn't matter anymore, and you're in this other realm, this, um, I guess, union realm in some ways. Right. Where meaning is this dimension and not, not uh, the uh, three that most people talk about and that people retreat to when they say, you know, when they, when they can't explain something. And what you're describing right now, as you know, we call mysticism, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I'm interested in here. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, how do, we, do you teach classes incorporating this stuff at your at uh, at uh, Louisiana University? I'm really fortunate that I'm sorry, Louisiana State. That's right. I'm I'm really fortunate that LSU had a class um, that well, the college and university would probably I rather not talk about <laughs> uh, called religion and parapsychology. That was a class before I even arrived at LSU. Ah. And um, um, a, a dear old woman, uh, her name is going to come back to me here in just a second, who just died um, last year, and her her husband uh, endowed what's called the William James Fund mm. in the 1980s. And part of uh, the uh, requirement of that fund was that a class be taught on religion and parapsychology. <laughs> Um, and so that class has been at LSU since the 1980s, and it's one of the few and probably the oldest class in the country on religion and the paranormal, mm-hmm. or religion and, and parapsychology. Mm-hmm. Now, now, one would think that LSU might consider that like a major hallmark of their classes, but I've never heard them or seen anything on their website uh, touting that this is one of the unique and cutting edge classes that, that you can that you can take or that a student can take at LSU. Of course it wouldn't, but I be, I would I would guess and I would hope that in five or ten years they'll be embarrassed that they never said anything about it for this long. <laughs> Probably so. And so the the old woman uh, again who just died. And I want to say she might have been ninety two or ninety three. Her name was Catherine Petty. Okay. Did you uh, tell me you husband, met her? I, I did. I did. I liked Catherine Petty. Uh, quite a bit. And she liked me. Uh, she she found her way to me probably six years ago by visiting the LSU website and uh, the religious studies site in particular. And she saw that I had an interest in these kind of ideas and, and LSU, uh, UFOs in particular. And she called me <laughs> one day in the office and we became friends. Yeah. And I visited her uh, at her home several times uh-huh. uh, between uh, then and when she died. And I actually invited her to talk to my class probably three years ago. So maybe a few years before she died. Mm-hmm. It's just something that I wanted to do Yeah, because I liked her and I knew it was going to be meaningful for her. 
And uh, and she 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 found a way uh, to get her wheelchair up to my class. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, there's actually a picture of her uh, at, with my class in the news and notes section of the uh, of religious studies website at, at LSU, where I actually wrote a memorial to her uh, again um, after her daughter contacted me uh, sometime this summer. I think it was late summer when she died telling me that she had passed on. Mm. And I just wanted my students to be able to talk to her and for her to be able to talk to my students. Uh, and it was just a, a beautiful exchange. So let me let me go back just a little. Sure. Uh, Catherine Petty's son died at a young age. And after he died, and I don't remember uh, what year, I'm sure she told me, she, she claimed to have seen him. She claimed to have seen him and to have uh, had conversations with him after he died. Yeah. And this led her uh, to her interest in psychical phenomena and spiritualism. And so uh, she's so she gave me some of her archives, which uh, most of which I gave to LSU. But there's some things she gave me personally. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, some of what she gave me were journals of the Louisiana Psychical Society. Wow. Uh, she gave me a notebook. Uh, from when she had uh, attended a symposium at IONS, and you've heard of that in Petaluma. Yeah. Institute of mm-hmm. Noetic Sciences, yeah. That's that's exactly right. And she she talked about J.B. Rhine, who, uh, as you know, was the director of probably the most famous uh, parapsychology laboratory at Duke University, as if she knew him. Mm. And I, I couldn't verify uh, that, she, that she did, in fact, knew him, but I strongly suspect that she had at least met him. Right. And it had conversations with him. And so yeah. and she and his and wife, husband, I guess, Louisa. That's right. So so Catherine Petty and William Petty wanted to endow a fund at a research school uh, where where I think they believed research related to this would be carried out. And at least a course would be taught uh, extending the, the legacy of what was really important to them. And that's how I came to, to teach that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a psychologist uh, by the name of Dr. Pettigrew who was teaching the class uh, when I arrived at LSU for probably about the first five years. Right. And when, he, and when he retired, I took the course over, and I've been teaching it ever since. What do you teach in that class? Well, we, 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 we use Jeff Kripal's uh, Authors of the Impossible uh, as the primary course book. Mm-hmm. But but I also include uh, reading supplementary readings from a lot of scholars whose names you would recognize. Mm. Uh, uh, we we start off uh, with uh, uh, early on in the course by reading uh, by Dean Radden um, from his book The Conscious Universe. Yep. The uh, there's one. a book edited by Thompson. Uh, I forget the other editor called Religion and Parapsychology which gives the history of religion and parapsychology, of course, which is the name of this class. Yep. Uh, there's some uh, recent uh, scholarship on uh, anthropology or paranthropology uh, by Hunter, uh, which is really dense, you know, intellectually dense. You mean Jack material. Hunter? Hunter. Uh-huh. That's Jack Hunter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Greening the paranormal uh, is his latest one. That's right. We read his, his article, that same article uh, on, uh, ethnographic uh, and epistemological perspectives to uh, the study of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really rich class. uh, uh, And we use this. And of course, we we, we supplement the class with a lot of uh, uh, Jacques Vallée's 
writings too. Uh, I want to come take that class. <laughs> it's, look, look, it's 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 a wonderful class, and I think it's maybe one of the most important classes uh, in the entire college. But of course, that's my perspective. Well, I'd uh, agree with you because, like I said, this this kind of stuff I think is being mainstreamed at this point, and people are at the point where they can th- they can think about it in a non dualistic way at this point, and that they're open to it. Um, in the, and that's you know in a and, in a in a you know structure of scientific revolutions cune way where the you know the old guard has to go away before you can start pushing these new ideas, and that's exactly the the the, the sort of framework or the model of knowledge that I'm pushing to my students. Not a dualistic one, but a both and. Mm-hmm. And so we also uh, do some readings in uh, 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 what is it, uh, Kittner and uh, Rosenblum's. Uh, uh, quantum uh quantum enigma mm-hmm. right because some of the quantum physics material coheres really nicely mm-hmm. uh with some of the studies of of the paranormal it does. and so yeah. it really is a, a really cutting edge class um but but you know you you know how it is people people don't really get it and they're probably a little embarrassed by it but i think it's really a hallmark course at lsu like I said, that was even at LSU before I was. And so it's really a historic course that probably doesn't have a rival anywhere in the country except maybe Rice University's course, which is in religious studies. Yeah, Any well, other, because most, Kripal's running that, so of course they're that, going to... That's right. That's right. <laughs> but most of the other courses that I've seen across the country that take the paranormal seriously are in disciplines like engineering and, and psychology. Uh-huh. But this one's in religion, which again makes it really unique. Yeah, it's quite unique because I've I've lectured at uh, every um, semester, at least every year, depending on when he gets it approved. I lecture at a class called UFOs and Culture um, ah. f- for the sociology department at UC Irvine for Professor uh, William Dewan. Uh, very nice. And, I didn't know uh, that course existed. And it's a very popular course because you know young people they they want to they want to learn about things that people a lot of people tell them that they shouldn't know about. Or that, right. that are not important. That sounds like young people. Yeah. And that, you know, any any intelligent young person is automatically is going to reject what people tell them they should know. That's right. And if you have a course like yours or like, uh, you know, Dr. Dewan's here, it's going to be very popular. Is, is your is your course usually filled up? Uh, normally the course uh, caps at 30. Uh-huh. And we, we generally fill or come really close to it. Uh-huh. But the course has historically had a waiting list. Oh, yeah. And so it's, so it's a popular course. But I also have a student in the class who's, who's building a Wikipedia page of, about the academic study of the paranormal. And I'll have to tell her about that class at uh, UC Irvine. Yeah. He also has another one, I think, believe, I believe called Conspiracy and Culture. So he goes through the, the, the entire, you know, he tell, talks to people about, uh, about Bill Cooper and, and, and uh, um, Alex Jones and all this and um, tries to put that in context. Like how, do these, how do these movements and these people flourish? What are they saying? How do they affect society? How does, he, how does society affect them? Um, that, uh, and he, I was talking to uh, Patty Terezi about this, and she said it's really hard sometimes to ride that line of I'm trying to teach you something, but I'm not trying to tell you how to think about it. And I'm not trying to push any agenda. What my, my agenda that I'm pushing is curiosity and openness. But what's also fascinating about this, and, and some of this has come out 
in this conversation is across the country, all the scholars in various disciplines who are actually interested in these phenomena and who are taking it seriously, from sociology to history to psychology mm-hmm. to anthropology, right. and even in the sciences and STEM, like engineering and so on. Yes. And it's, a, it's amazing, but, but what's amazing is that how underground this still is, that there's no sense that, like you said, this is becoming much more mainstream. Yeah. Right. There's, there's not a real sense to me that this has congealed to the point to where people are willing to to talk about it openly in these material, historically materialist disciplines and the sciences and so on. Well, we science. live in a materialistic world, so it's hard to, you know, if your cell phone works, you can say that's wonderful because everything that, you know, it's a miracle that this is in my hand, but somebody knows how to put that together. Um, when you talk about some of these other things, there is no readily available access for everybody to these kind of experiences. So I think because of the way that we've, you know, everything's been set up for us where I can't remember, I think I talked to Deep Prasad and he said, yeah, we've had our hundred years of, of materialism and that's probably, um, it's probably melting away right now, but it's a very slow melt. It is a slow melt. And I have to say that I have very few conversation partners within my own area of study, which is African-American religion. Uh, I'm specifically interested in race, religion, and embodiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, UFOs and the paranormal are are a part of that. Right. But but even within that small group, I appreciate the 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 handful of people who I can talk to at various universities a- around the country. And I'm thinking right now, scholars, at at least three or four, maybe five other universities, and these are research universities, right, across the country who do related work. Who, who I can talk to about these these kinds of ideas and be taken be taken seriously and actually learn from them too. Otherwise, uh, most of my conversation partners are almost wholly outside of the study of African American religion. And again, we're talking about folks at Esalen, uh, Jeff Kripal, um, uh folks like you just mentioned at what was that UNC Wilmington or is that Greensboro? Uh, Wilmington. Patty. That's that's uh, Patty Teresi. And, that's exactly that's exactly right. And of course, that's Diana. So, yeah. And then and then uh, at lunch at the American Academy of Religion or breakfast, Chris was there, and Chris teaches at one of those UNC campuses, right? I think Greensboro or or he, Wilmington. He, he's at Wilmington as well. Yes. That's right. And so, my conversation partners largely are outside of the study of African American religion. Right. And at the same time, I really appreciate them or else I'd hardly have anybody to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> no, you find those people. I mean, before the Internet, I don't know how anybody got along and, and found out who, you know, you'd have to go to some, you know, weird, <laughs> weird uh, something that was not scholarly at all just to find somebody who was interested in this thing. And if you were lucky, somebody would secretly be able to, you know, s- sort of send you letters back and forth. But now with the with the Internet, it's much easier to make these conne- connections. I'm sure, you know, that's how you f- all my friends now, all my friends used to be in Los Angeles in Southern California. Now they're basically spread all over the world. That's right. And and the other thing that's really helpful is that these works are being published in book form by university presses. Yes. And, and they're being published in peer-reviewed academic journals. Why do you and, think that is? Well, I, I think I think we've pointed to the fact that uh, there seems to be a shift. Yeah. And it's they're still, still kind of weirded shift. out about it too, but they, they're, they're, they're still publishing because I think they think that this is where it's going. 
I, I think you're right. But but part of what has helped to con- congeal these communities has to be excellent mm. and the, the Center for Theory and Research, uh-huh. because, you know, that center brings together scholars from all kinds of disciplines. Yeah. Uh, evolutionary biology, physics, history of religions, anthropology, genetics. And that has to have an effect on this growing number of scholars who are actually doing research from various disciplines. Right. And so, I mean, I would point to that as one of the reasons. Right. Uh, other than that, I'm just not sure, except maybe maybe continuing disenchantment with materialist views of the world that seem to conflict so much with the experiences that people are actually having. Yes, exactly. Let, you know, let, let's take your experience and put it in, in, in the box that makes sense to everybody else. And you can't do that anymore. Uh, right. or at least get it, uh, get any further, do that anymore and, 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 and progress in, in any kind of understanding or learning about how these things affect people. And that's why I have my students reading one of the newer pieces I've added to the class is Jeff Kripal's, uh chapter in his latest book, The Flip. Yeah. And I think it's chapter two called Flipped Scientists. Oh, yeah, yeah. My students will be reading that next month and we'll be discussing it where he's recounting all these scientists and medical professionals and especially among the the quantum physicists who who have had these paranormal experiences and it's totally changing their views of the inadequacy of science or at least materialist views of science. And uh, and so but but because people are pushing this and they're writing about it and publishing it. Now the scholarship is starting to mount up and it's authorizing more of us to do work on this material and to talk about it and to lecture about it and to publish about it. Yeah. And that that's amazing to me because this has been marginalized for the entire time that I've been interested in it since I was a kid. And that that revolution, that quiet revolution right now is is far more important than to me than any TV shows about this or um, wh- whatever you want to call it. The, the, the mainstream, the popular culture has accepted it a long time ago. But um, nobody listens to popular culture when they want to take something seriously. You know, it's That's just, exactly it's just right. fun stories. That's and, right. you know, part of my argument with this is uh, people say, you know, you can't look at this from a humanity standpoint. You can't look at it from a, um, a non-scientific viewpoint. And I said, well... The last time you listened to some music or watched a movie or whatever, were you affected? You know, something you really like? Well, yes, you were. Um, and for the, uh, if you talk about the UFO subject or the paranormal, people are affected in the same way. Right. So does that mean it's not real? Are your feelings not real just because you can't quantify them? That's so right. That, that is interesting to me, and that is why I think it's important that people like you and others are looking at this from this point of view and saying, look, we must take this seriously uh, at our peril, you know, and despite living in a quantitative materialist world and uh, and an academy the uh, that values, you know, I'm not, I'm not rejecting that material. Yeah. I, the, for me, there's no turning around. I mean, this is the, the trajectory of my work. I think it's utterly important. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of almost so all too. of my future projects are related to this subject, mm-hmm. uh, uh, especially as it pertains to race and the paranormal uh, and so on. And so for me, there's no turning around. I mean, no. I'm, I'm on board for the long haul because, <laughs> <laughs> because this stuff is, is, is super important. It says something about, I think, who we are uh, as people. Uh, but it's also interesting to me because these are the conversations that we are not having. 
And for me, that's always the most interesting material. What are we not talking about? What's marginalized? And, and why are we marginalizing? Yeah. I get suspicious, like, and we, again, we started off there yeah. about material that has been rejected mm-hmm. and rejected so vociferously. Like, wait, what's going on there? Yeah, what are you so scared of? <laughs> right, that's right. And, and that attracts me. I'm yeah. interested in that material. Oh, that's always attracted me. Right. You know, what, what, what is the thing that's rejected by everybody? There must be something there. There must be something to it. That's yeah, exactly right. I mean, if, if people ignore things... Well, then they probably should be ignored. But if they actively fight against them, what's the, you know, what's the reason for that? Thou doth protest too much, you know? I agree. I agree. <laughs> um, when would you like to talk again? When your books come out? I would love to talk. Um, so by the end of the year. Okay. December, I'm thinking a few of my books should be out, but also a few important articles. Uh-huh. will be out. And I'd really love to talk about those. I, I can't, I don't want to say that much about them now because yeah, they're not okay. out. Yeah. Uh, but they're really important articles that uh, have been accepted in, in really significant journals. Uh-huh. And I think by the end of the year, we'll have a lot of new material uh, that I've published that I, that I'd love to, to, to describe and talk about for your listeners. All right. That'd be great, Stephen. I, I, I can't wait. And in the meantime, we'll keep in touch. I really appreciate that. And, you know, you can you can contact me anytime. All right. Um, thanks so much for spending this time with me. And um, I think that what we talked about here, I haven't heard about it anywhere else. I think I think what you're doing is unique. And I think that people really need to hear about it, even if it makes them them uncomfortable and especially if it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> That's right. And I appreciate the affirmation. Uh, I, I take it where I can get it because it doesn't come so regularly. <laughs> All right, Steve, Stephen, thank you so much. And I'll talk you to you too. again soon. Have a wonderful day. Well, all right. Starcha, citizens of the universe, recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership. I am the mothership connection. Get down in 3D. Light year group. Then yo hip and come on to the mothership. Loose boot, doing the bump. Hustle on over here.
on my sunglasses here so I can see what I'm doing. Yeah. 